is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today's show, another top terrorist killed in a U.S. military operation this time. The U.S. says the leader of the notorious group ISIS killed himself and members of a family when he exploded a bomb during the American military raid in Syria. We'll go in-depth into who this man was, why the U.S. went after him now, and if politics played a role in the timing. It's nice and sunny here in L.A., but not for many parts of the country. A massive winter storm that's stretching across much of the country is dumping snow, leading to power outages for tens of thousands of people, canceling thousands of flights, and even creating tornado warnings. Doctors are saying COVID will never go away. It'll eventually get into this endemic phase. But when will that happen? There's one biosecurity expert in Australia who's suggesting it's never going to happen. Is she right? Former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores suing the NFL, claiming racial discrimination. Does he have a case? And do black coaches and players get treated unfairly? And people who don't care much for the Super Bowl tune in for the commercials. Uh, there are going to be millions of dollars sold, and they're sold out every spot. If you want to buy one, if you had this company, that you're just launching. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I I cannot now buy a commercial for the Super Bowl. Well, you shouldn't have waited so long. <laughs> I told you. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's $7 million a piece or something yeah. like that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And uh, the Winter Olympics begin in Beijing, China, all of that on the show today. We start, though, with the death of the ISIS leader. With us is Javed Ali, former senior director of counterterrorism at the National Security Council. He also served as counsel at the FBI in the Department of Homeland Security. Thanks for being with us. So tell us who this guy is and why it's important. Is it important that he's no longer with us? So Charles and Mike, uh, always great to be with you. So the death of the uh, leader, uh, Al-Qurashi, the ISIS leader, Al-Qurashi, this is another significant achievement for U.S. counterterrorism. And for the last uh, almost 20 years now, the U.S. has made this one of our um, significant priorities in terms of going after the top leadership of groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and sort of the operational blueprint for these types of complex uh, raids by the United States. We have perfected this over over time or certainly refined it. And what happened uh, over overnight is a result of a lot of effort and focus on that. So what happens when you take out the head of one of these organizations? Because, again, we've done this before. Is this guy different than others that have come before him? Is he as powerful as a leader? I mean, what kind of effect is it going to have? Yeah, this is one of those really important questions to ask. And in the history of modern counterterrorism, despite all the effort and the planning and the risk that gets involved in launching these these complex raids, um, up until recently, and perhaps even so going forward, that they generally don't lead to the strategic defeat or collapse of these groups. It doesn't mean that you don't conduct the raid, but if you're aiming to to bring sort of the organization to a halt, that has... Yep. Have we lost him? We might have. Well, anyway, uh, but one of the things... uh, The internet. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about uh, uh, the head of ISIS that was uh, killed this morning, or he blew himself up anyway, is that he kept a very low profile. Uh, And as I understand it from what I've read, uh, he rarely, if ever, left the apartment uh, house that he was living in 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 Syria, uh, only to go to the rooftop, apparently, where he would take, I guess, a daily bath. But other than that, he stayed in the apartment complex because he was afraid 
that he was a target, which I guess he, he turned was. out to be. Yeah, to be and right. one of these things that, that we've seen them do before, too. You surround yourself in a building with a whole bunch of civilians, so you're, you know, more apt to maybe not be a target. But again, um, from what we're hearing from from the U.S. government, uh, a lot of these civilian deaths that happened is because he blew up the third floor. Uh, Javed, I think we have you um, back now. Real quick, before we do run out of time, you were saying this doesn't cripple the organization, but it does it does something. Sure, it, it certainly removes the number one person on the organizational chart or the bureaucratic chart, but ISIS has proven to be very resilient, even more so than Al-Qaeda. And because of the, the scope of the organization and the fact that it has so many local Iraqi and Syrian extremists and fighters who've been around for, for several years, if not longer, there is probably a large bench from uh, from which to pick. But will that person command the respect? Will they be able to lead the organization in whatever uh, direction they need to go in the future? These are all things that ISIS internally is now having to sort out. Javed Ali, former senior director, counterterrorism, National Security Council, also was at the FBI and Homeland Security. Did politics play a role in the timing of the operation against the leader of ISIS? President Biden's approval ratings have been sagging, and presidents in the past have been accused of authorizing similar operations when their popularity was sinking. Don Hader Markle is political science chair at the University of Kansas and specializes in the dynamics between public opinion, political behavior, and public policy. Don, thanks for being with us. So, um... You know, ISIS has been around for a while. We've apparently known where this guy, the head of ISIS, uh, has been for quite some time. Uh, coincidence or not that this was the timing? Good afternoon. Um, given what we typically know about um, leaders of groups like the Islamic State and al-Qaeda, it's more likely that we had solid intelligence at this time rather than we knew every of its movements um, in recent months. So what does that mean for the timing of of doing this? And I guess, I mean, can you blame any White House for for doing a big, I don't know, show is the right word, but coming out and having the press conference? Because, you know, press release and call it a day doesn't really cut it in a situation like this. If you take out the head of a terrorist organization, people are going to have questions. Right. So so two points. I mean, since the 1990s, since we first started tar- trying to target o- Osama bin Laden, um, it's it's really having actionable intelligence to move forward. There's sort of a standing order to look for this person and potentially target this person. Once that um, good intelligence comes in, then it gets kicked up the chain of command to make a decision. Do we go in now? Do we go in with a drone strike? Do we go in with special operations forces, which is a more risky proposition? And that's basically what they, what they did here. So I would say the timing has more to do with actionable intelligence than it does with, um, President Biden's uh, uh, political stance. Okay, and 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 if we take that at, at face value, and we don't don't have any evidence to contradict it, so let's take it at face value. Uh, still, I mean, a politician, any politician, would want to try to use something as big as this to their advantage politically, and I suspect uh, the White House would want to. In fact, they're starting to do it already. Is there any evidence, though? that this sort of thing actually has much mileage in terms of uh, the public when we take out somebody like the current head of ISIS or when during the Obama uh, administration we took out Osama bin Laden? Yeah, so what we refer to that as a sort of the effect being a rally around the flag, flag effect. And in this case, given 
given everything that's going on in the world right now, including the start of the Olympics, it's unlikely to me that this is going to provide much of a boost to bin, bin, um, Biden's ratings. You know, I would expect maybe amongst Democrats and in, in independents, he might gain a couple of points, but I suspect that Republican approval rating isn't going to change at all. How did you view the statement and then some of the background given to the reporters? Because they did seemingly make clear all, all the calculations, right? Or at least uh, a lot of them. They said, here's why we didn't do an airstrike. Here's why we did use troops, even though they were in harm's way. Here were the concerns about civilians. No, absolutely. It appears that um, a civilian family was living on the first floor of the of the building. Um, so I think they took as many precautions as they wanted or as they could. Unfortunately, because uh, a, a weapon was detonate, detonated on the site, it appears that both women and children were killed. Upwards of six children were killed. So, I mean, it's sort of, um, you know, problematic, especially given recent revelations about uh, some of the, the drone strikes and such. But in any operation like this, it's, it's somewhat unpredictable. Um, and the loss of civilian life is is likely going to happen. I, I do want to go back uh, to the politics of it, because uh, these kinds of operations have the potential, of course, to to backfire. I'm thinking way back to uh, during the Carter administration, the attempt to rescue uh, uh, the hostages right then held in Iran. And that backfired terribly. And it did have uh, a, apparently a really enormous effect on the Carter presidency, if I remember correctly. Um, how much thinking do, do we know from the historical record goes into this when everyone's sitting around the situation room giving advice to whoever the president happens to be? How much thinking does go into the potential political ramifications? Yeah, well, interestingly, the, the Biden administration hasn't made fully clear yet how it how it goes through a process of making decisions like this. Um, the, if you recall, the Obama administration had something that it called a kill list. Um, and that basically then they had to, any time they found a target um, with actionable intelligence, that had to be run up the chain of command. And it looks like that's the way it worked here. In the Trump administration, more um, leeway was given to field commanders to go ahead and take these actions without um, bringing them to the White House first. So it's not clear to me exactly in the Biden administration how much um, decision-making happened on this particular strike or how much um, go-ahead was given just knowing that this was a possibility. Um, I think it's always risky to use our forces, certainly, but one of the things that we learned from the catastrophe in the Carter administration was to actually stand up these kinds of special operations forces. It takes a variety of forms from Delta Force to SEAL teams, et cetera, that have operated in these scenarios over long periods of time with extremely um, intense training to make the likelihood of failure um, quite small. Don Hader Markham, political science chair, University of Kansas. Coming up. The NFL being sued, accused of racial discrimination by former Dolphins coach Brian Flores. 
We'll look into whether the league has an issue with systemic racism and the Winter Olympics. Starting in China, it doesn't seem like there's much of a buzz, though, here in the U.S. This uh, winter storm, though, causing problems, blanketing much of the country. Texas to Pennsylvania, snow and ice, 200,000 homes and businesses without power, thousands of flights canceled. Jim Cantori, Weather Channel meteorologist, storm chaser in Columbus, Ohio right now. Jim, thanks for talking to us. Uh, This is a mess. Oh, my God. I mean, diagonally across the United States, Texas to Canada to uh, just absolutely nuts uh, with the power outages. And I think we've just begun here, too. We're just getting into some of the heavier icing. I mean, what's saving us, I think, a lot is some of this freezing rain is mixing with or turning to sleet. And sleet doesn't, like, accumulate on the trees and the power lines. Uh, it bounces off. So I think that's what's saving us from, from massive power outages. But holy cow, the, the aircraft, it's going to take three or four days, guys, to get the aircraft back in line. I mean, that, that's just unbelievable today. You know, the uh, of course, it's winter, right, in, in much of the country, unlike here in beautiful, sunny L.A., but, but it is winter everywhere else. And so I guess it shouldn't be surprising. And yet, uh, didn't we just have this ma- a massive winter storm for a lot of the country, like, days ago? Well, I mean, that was really an I-95 snowstorm. I mean, it was all snow. <laughs> we, we didn't have to really deal with freezing rain or sleet or you know, kind of an extended period. It really kind of came and went in about uh, 8 to 16 hours for, for most people. But this thing's like two and a half days. Uh, I was just looking at uh, FlightAware. Guys, 5,000 flights in the United States canceled. 5,000. Wow. I mean, that you know, that's up there with the biggies, for sure. So, um, you know, this, this is going to take a while to unscramble because you got major airports involved. you got Dallas. you got Chicago. You have, you know, actually both Dallas, both Love and, 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 and Fort Worth, St. Louis, Lambert Field, Denver uh, is involved, Columbus uh, International Airport here uh, where I am. So just absolutely nuts. And is what makes this one, you know, special in the worst way is that, like you said, we're getting different kinds of weather. You can travel from state to state or go through this diagonal line and you're going to get basically, you know, spin the wheel and either you're going to get the, the snow or you're going to get the sleets or you're going to get rain or you're, you're going to get something. And then we've got like tornado warnings, too. So everything. Yeah, I, I, I was just looking at that before I came to you guys south of Birmingham. I saw we had a tornado warning. Um, I mean, that cell looks as good as any any cell for Alabama in the, in the middle of uh, winter. So. Yeah, this thing, this thing absolutely has it all. Um, we even had some flood warnings. I, I was looking at uh, flooding um, in southeast Ohio. So how about how about Ohio? We've got flood warnings. We have freezing rain in Columbus and sleet. Uh, we have snow in Cleveland and Lima and Greenville. I mean, it's just absolutely. Ohio has everything, including 102,000 customers without power. It's crazy. So here comes the question that everybody always uh, hits you guys with when there are you know big weather events. Any of this because of climate change, or is that a contributing factor? You know, sometimes I can you can go and connect a couple of dots with these winter storms because you know we had a record-setting snow in Boston in a short period of time. Um, it was actually tied twenty-three point six for a single day. And, you know, you're talking about records that go back to the 1700s, 1800s. And you could say, you know, well, because the water's above average, I mean, some of the water temperatures were 8, eight 9 degrees above average Fahrenheit. And, you know, that's going to add heat to the storm. So you can go back and do it that way. Um, you know, this storm, the setup was right. 
I, I think we could have gotten this one anyway, frankly. But, you know, somebody, somebody may be able to find a, a, a connection. The good news is, uh, especially in states like Texas, as you remember last year, that the big problems that they had in Texas with the deep freeze and the snow, um, at least they're ready for it this year. Like almost, almost over ready, it sounds like. Jim Cantori, Weather Channel meteorologist, and uh, he's in Columbus, Ohio. Jim, thanks. Karen, aren't you glad you're not in Ohio where it's snowing and raining and freezing and possible Spin the wheel and, and see what you get. Yeah, yeah, and here you are basking in the warmth of southern, well, not that warm, but at least it's sunny here. You don't mind the cold? Well, well no, no. Well, you're an East Coast person originally, right? So you're used to the cold, but, but it's better than, you don't want to be like in Ohio today, do you? Yeah, it's like, who wants to be in Ohio? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sounds like I would be in Ohio any day. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, here comes the email from somebody in Ohio. It's What's really from... nice. <laughs> this is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Doctors and scientists have been saying COVID will eventually become endemic, meaning it's, it's there. It's not as rampant, though, as it is now. We'll learn to live with it, right? But one biosecurity expert in Australia says COVID will never get to that point. Uh, she says it will remain an epidemic. In parts because uh, it's, there's a large rapid rise in the uh, case numbers and we go through these waves. All right. So what is the future of COVID? Dr. Jessica Justman is an associate professor of medicine and epidemiology at Columbia Mailman School of Public Health and senior technical director at ICAP. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, I, I'm not 100 percent sure what the uh, expert in Australia is getting at, but it sounds like what she's saying is that uh, it's wishful thinking that uh, COVID, uh, the coronavirus, is going to kind of recede into the deep background and and not really be something that people are going to have to care about much. Um, well, I, I see her point. I think that um, COVID has shown us that the business of looking in a crystal ball and predicting what's coming um, has been very difficult. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of fatigue right now with with COVID and people really wishing that it will recede, it will become endemic, um, which means it will become predictable and fairly low level the way we all get colds, you know, and there's low levels of, of flu in most typical winter seasons. But we really don't know. And I think we have to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. And I'm not the first one to say that, but I think that that is a really wise position um, to take. Um, I do have some additional thoughts. I, I will say that I think if we can get to a position where we have easier access to rapid tests, and if we can have um, easier access to effective treatment that's easy to take, such as pills for a few days or even a nasal inhaler, and if those were safe and effective, I think that that would really um, help us get to a better place more rapidly. Is that one of the big problems right now? Because we keep saying, you know, oh, pills, and we hear about the pills that are here. And well, are they? Because places are still having a lot of trouble getting their hands on them. The numbers aren't there. So if we were awash in the treatment pills, would this really be a whole different story? 
Well, I want to believe that it would be. I, as an infectious disease specialist, I'm all too familiar with antimicrobial resistance, whether it's bacterial resistance or viral resistance. So we have to you know, be mindful that if we are able to manufacture large quantities of these pills and make them widely distributed and easy to get, we do have to be concerned that the virus could mutate and become resistant to these medications. It's always, a, you know, you might wanna call it that whack-a-mole game that we're always playing and can we stay one step ahead? But I, I don't think that's a reason to not try. I would still definitely try to get, you know, larger numbers of these medications out there and to make them, you know, much more accessible, especially to people who are at the highest risk of having more severe course of COVID, a rougher ride because they are older or they have medical conditions. Those are the people who really need access to the rapid testing and to the pills. I'm curious about uh, something. In the very beginning stages of the pandemic, uh, I remember, and we talked about this lots on the show here, uh, you know, experts were saying, well, the problem isn't that it's such a weird virus. It's the coronavirus family. We're familiar with it. It's that People don't have immunity to it. But once we have a a fair number of people who do, things will settle down. And then as the months have gone on, experts now are saying things like, and you kind of said it before, that, you know, there are things that we thought we understood about this virus that maybe we don't understand. So my question is, is this coronavirus behaving much differently than other members of its family? It certainly um, does cause severe disease in ways that other members of the coronavirus family really had not. I mean, not to the same kind of wide um, distribution. The the two members of the family that we do have experience with from before um, was the first SARS from 2002. And then um, from about 2008, the second one was called um, MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Both of those involved just a much, much smaller number of people. So with this combination of causing sort of more severe disease in a larger number of people, that is what's new. Um, you're right, everything keeps changing. Um, that's, you know, keeps us all on our toes. I think that, um, the ability of the virus to infect has um, improved. We have all heard how Omicron is more transmissible. And when that's the case, you have to raise the bar in terms of how many people already have, you know, seen it, whether through natural infection or through vaccination. Um, the, The large, the more transmissible it is, the higher the bar gets. Dr. Jessica Justman at the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health and Senior Technical Director at ICAP. The NFL accused in a new lawsuit of racial discrimination by former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores. He was let go even though the Dolphins finished with a winning record. Says he was passed over by the Giants, was only interviewed because of a league rule requiring teams to talk to at least two minority candidates. League says the claims are without merit. It's been long accused of not giving black coaches a fair shake. With us is Lester Ricard, former NFL quarterback for Jacksonville and Carolina. Also Anthony Tall, civil rights and defense attorney, also sports agent, president and founder of Miracle Sports Agency and Aspire Sports Group. 
Anthony, uh, let's start with you just for the legal perspective. What do you think of the uh, the suit and the case? Well, uh, good afternoon, guys. Well, with the evidence that, that is put in the in the complaint, if those allegations turns out to be true or there's evidence to support it, and I can't help but think that the attorneys who prepared this complaint had something substantiating that, I think the NFL would be best to settle this as soon as possible. This is a big deal. Let's make no mistake about it. You can't have an owner of a team offering to pay a coach money to tank games. If that allegation is true, and we don't know if it's true, but if that's true and there's evidence to support that, just like the text evidence that support what Bill Belichick knew about the hiring of the other coach, uh, if that is supported, the $100,000 allegation, the NFL wants to settle this as soon as possible. This is a horrible black eye for the NFL a week and a half before the Super Bowl. So, I think that the, the 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 claim, if true, has merit. It's a lot of uh, reasons why it would be difficult to fire a coach who wins the last eight games, has two winning seasons, beats Bill Belichick twice. It's really hard to see all of that going uh, and then him being fired for any other reason, considering the obvious that there's only one other black coach in the NFL at this time. So it looks pretty substantial to me. Master, you're a former quarterback, NFL quarterback. Is it a racist organization? Wow. Just to make the whole NFL to be racist is uh, is kind of a, you know, obnoxious comment to make. But I can tell you this. Uh, there are pockets of racism. And, and really, you know, to call it racism, maybe more so just a good old boy system. It's how you plug up. It's how the world is now. It's who you know. I'll tell you this, my rookie year in Jacksonville, and we were the only organization with um, all of the quarterbacks at the time. You know, the current head coach, uh, sorry, offense coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Byron Leftwich, started the season off as our starting quarterback. It was myself, David Garrard, Quinn Graves, and myself. And eventually they cut Dave, uh, they cut uh, Byron Leftwich right before the season started. But we were the only organization that had all black quarterbacks on the roster. And back then, you know, the whole coaching thing wasn't an issue as much as the quarterback position because we were looked at where we were intelligent enough, where we were smart enough to be playing that position, um, just like right now what we're looking at in that coaching position. But, you know, with a league with 70% of its players are African-American, you would think that there would be more opportunities for minorities to get head coaching positions and coordinated positions, but it's just not happening. Yeah, why do you think it's not happening? Because, look, we've got all the calls for it. We've got yeah. the rule, whether it's being uh, adhered to the way it should, for getting yeah. at least in the door to have the interview. But, again, I mean, you can have the commissioner and all these people saying, this should be better, and then the owners won't budge. So what do you do in the situation when apparently the owners won't budge? So let me tell you this story. Zach Taylor, who's now going to be coming down there to L.A. to play in the uh, Super Bowl in a couple of weeks, the head coach of Cincinnati Bengals. He was my third-string quarterback when he and I played in the Senior Bowl our senior year. Came from Nebraska. I came out of the Tulane University. Um, fast forward, I go to the National Football League. He gets released in training camp. He follows up with, because of who his father-in-law is, he gets an opportunity to go be a grad assistant at Texas A&M. His career meteoric goes to now he's coaching the Super Bowl. And he's done a phenomenal job with the Bengals. But so many of those guys get those opportunities just because of, of who you know and, and what who knows this family member or who's got a relationship in this area. 
And to be quite frank with you, a lot of the black minority um, candidates just don't have that same type of connection. And, you know, you think about why the Rooney Rule was put in place. Um, it took an, someone calling Art Rooney to say, hey, there's a guy down in Minnesota who's a defensive coordinator. Uh, he's a sharp guy. I think you ought to go down and interview. You know, Art Rooney had already made a decision on who his head coach is going to be, apparently. But before and and after he got the phone call, he goes down and flies to Minnesota, meets Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin, he then flies his family up to Pittsburgh to meet them. The, the rest is short. 16 years, the history has been made. So uh, we just are not getting that opportunity. So many of them are having their minds made up, just like the whole Brian Flores, Brian Dayball debacle. Um, it's just – you know, you plugged into the system, and obviously Davo is plugged into the system, and, and Flores wasn't. Lester, uh, I understand that Flores is uh, saying that he thinks that other coaches are going to join the lawsuit. Do you think that's likely? Uh, I uh, 100% believe it. You know, listen, um, the whole Rooney Rule is being made mockery of, you know, bringing in two minority candidates just to interview, just to say you were part of the process. Um, and not really getting a fair shake. You know, I'll be honest with you, of the nine head coaching opportunities that were in the NFL, I went on record and said there'd be five head black coaches that'll be in this higher cycle. I thought at least you talk of Flores who'll get a job. I thought for sure Byron Leftwich would get a job. I thought maybe a D'Amico Ryan for sure would get a job, the job he's done in San Francisco. Um, and it's um, we're, we're, 0 for, we're 0 for 4 right now. <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> My batting average is terrible yeah. right now. So, uh, um, you know, listen, and let me, and I, and I want to go on record and say this: it's not the team's right to hire a black guy just because a black guy's interviewing for the job. It is the team's responsibility to hire the guy who feel can take their organization to the next level, or at least put them in playoff contention, make them a championship contention. But you look around the guys who are being hired, especially this coaching cycle. Um, apparently, the guy that's down in Los Angeles now who doesn't call plays on Deshaun McVay. He's going to get the Minnesota job. The guy who was in Green Bay, just because he and Brett Favre are good buddies and he's a quarterback coach who doesn't get called, he's offensive coordinator only on paper, never calls a play, but yet he's being touted. He's now the head coach of the Denver Broncos. So um, it's just it's it's sad, but, you know, I don't know. It's going to take this lawsuit, I really believe this, for eyes to be open. Lester Ricard there. we got to run. A former NFL quarterback for Jacksonville and Carolina. Also, uh, Anthony Tall, thank you. Civil rights and defense attorney and sports agent. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. One of the things that makes the uh, Super Bowl the Super Bowl are the commercials. Some of the big productions that get everybody talking the next day. And then uh, some of them, you know, end up being duds, but you spent five or six million on it. So, yeah. whoops. <laughs> yeah, no matter how they are received by the public, the airtime for the commercials is expensive. This year, NBC selling all of its spots already, with NBC saying some companies spending as much as $7 million for a 30-second spot. Now, that's a record. Tim Hanlon is founder and CEO of the Vertier Group, a strategic consulting firm for companies. Tim, thanks for being with us. Uh, yeah, no matter how you count it, $7 million for 30 seconds, yeah, it does sound like a lot. Is it worth it? Hey, guys. The um, it's, it's always a question. Every year around this time, it is sort of the uh, – it's twofold. One is the, the sheer cost 
of literally just 30 seconds of airtime, right? Once it's gone, it's gone. Um, and to put that number that you just quoted in perspective, right? $7 million this year that NBC is getting uh, for the last few spots uh, this, this week, last week sold. Um, that's an increase from last year when CBS got about 5.5 million. So literally in the span of a year, that's gone up a million and a half bucks for a spot. Um, even that is, is hugely surprising. But to your question, right, is it worth it? Well, I mean, it, it's an age old question. It's been going on for decades. Um, the reality is it's about as live and uh, unmissable uh, a, a, an advertising environment that you're going to find. And it's upwards of 100 million people or so. And $7 million across reaching 100 million people, that's a pretty inexpensive cost, cost per thousand, as we say in the ad business. And then I guess it's not just the 30, right? If it's good, you end up, yeah. well, most of them end up on like the NBC website that says, here's our Super Bowl ads that we ran. And then if it's good, you're all over Twitter. And then you can start posting it too from your media account. And then uh, a whole bunch of news agencies are going to put together the slideshow that say, here's the best Super Bowl spots. And you're on every one of those pages. Yeah, and I think that's the dynamic over the last 10 plus years or so is the social sort of uh, reverberation. Um, the reality, though, is that uh, the $7 million figure, right, that's the, that's the media time, right? Um, oftentimes, marketers will also buy ancillary ads maybe in, say, the playoffs a week ahead of time or two weeks ahead of time or the Pro Bowl this coming weekend, uh, kind of seed sort of the, uh, uh, the, the intrigue, if you will. Uh, or to your, to your point, release them online and stuff to get some buzz going. So the, the cost of, of just the ad in the Super Bowl itself uh, is not the final cost, although there is that upside of potentially free, socially shared stuff afterwards in the conversation, if, to your question earlier or to your point earlier, it's actually a decent ad, right? Because if it sinks or it's, it's, it's not good or not well received, uh, you can make the argument it makes a bigger dent in one's uh, desire. Ah, so, so let's talk, actually, so let, let's talk a little bit about that, about how ads might be perceived because last year uh, and i guess even the year before as i'm sure you'll recall there was great concern about ads uh for these super type events super bowl type events uh that they strike the right tone and they not be tone deaf to the fact that uh, we were in still are in really uh, a pandemic is that still a concern about how these ads are pre presented if they can be humorous? Uh, can they be too humorous? Do they need to take into account that a lot of people have still been going through lots of great suffering? Yeah, I think it's a higher uh, and more precarious wire, right, to to navigate. Um, you know, you get that, you only get that one chance to make a, a decent first impression. And, you know, sometimes the, the comedy can be off kilter. Sometimes uh, audiences uh, may not uh, uh, take to it. It could be uh, an incentive, an incentive uh, approach that maybe perhaps wasn't uh, perceived or understood in the boardroom when the ad was being approved. Um, but, you know, again, I think a lot of people will take that risk knowing that it is an unfettered and fairly rare in this crazy and competitive media world chance to get a message out uh, without sort of any um, bifurcation or uh, any skipping or any uh, uh, you know, obstacles to being uh, to being seen. And if you get it right, uh, there's no bigger megaphone than the Super Bowl and all the things that come around it. 
Tim Hanlon, founder and CEO of the Vertair Group, strategic consulting firm, f- form, firm for companies. <laughs> there we go. Well, the Winter Olympics have begun in Beijing. There's the specter of COVID looming over them, like in Tokyo during the Summer Games. No international fans being allowed. Then there are human rights activists who have been vocal lately criticizing China, not to mention America seems more focused on other sports right now, you know, football, Super Bowl. So will the games be memorable? Is the buzz there? With us is Dave Lunt, history professor at uh, Southern Utah University. He's written extensively about the Olympics and its history. Dave, thanks for being here. Um, So what do you think? I mean, you Google Olympics opening ceremonies and everybody always writes the same headline. You know, here's how to watch there tomorrow. But I'm also wondering, are they actually reminding people like, no, really, it's tomorrow. Don't forget. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, you guys. Um, uh, I think you're asking the right question. Um, are these games going to be memorable? And obviously, you know, that remains to be seen. It's hard to tell the future. It's some kind of amazing, dramatic, athletic event or, you know, something crazy or unexpected happens. Uh, but so far, I think you're right. The world is a little uh, tired of, of COVID pandemic and the, the human rights kind of pall over the Olympics is there in, in China. And I also think this is part of a longer term trend where we're seeing, at least for the winter games, especially we're seeing uh, decreased interest. Uh, I don't know if we could speak worldwide, but definitely in terms of cities that are interested in holding the game. So it remains to be seen, but it's uh, probably a cause for concern. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned the human rights issue, which uh, in China is a big one because their, their record right now is, is not very good at all when it comes to human rights. Uh, I, I noticed the other day, and I think it was the New York Times, it was a full page ad uh, taking big American corporations to task for continuing to advertise uh, during the uh, Olympics. And apparently that had no real effect on most of those companies. Do people, though, viewers of the Olympics, is there any evidence that they care about these sort of controversies? Well, it's hard to gauge for me. I'm a historian, so it's, it's a little tough, but I think if we look historically, uh, the answer would be no. Uh, you know, boycotts haven't worked historically in terms of, of pressuring regimes to change their uh, ideas or their practices about how they're treating, whether it's ethnic minorities or, you know, things like free speech or political um, you know, whatever, uh, participation. So, um, I think people like the games, uh, when they're on TV and they're at a convenient time and then they, they move off them when they can. I also don't think it helps that Beijing is not well known for being a, a Mecca for winter sports. I, I suspect that that might be part of the, of the problem as well. If there's a lack of buzz. Right. They're having problems with the snow. I mean, they're making a lot of it. Some of the skiers aren't happy with it. Um, so that's a whole different issue. But what if an athlete does say something or protests or what does the IOC said about what they can or can't do and what they're supposed to do? And it's, you know, a different line from what China would probably say. Sure. And I, you know, I don't speak for the IOC at all. Um, but like I could say, historically, um, the International Olympic Committee has very much tried to have a position that the games are not political. In fact, they were started in the 1890s, this version of the Olympic Games, to um, sort of what would you say build bridges and you know overcome political differences to foster unity and sort of you know world brotherhood and sisterhood uh, of course we all know and we can tell that politics is a, is a major part anytime people from different countries get together and are official representatives and so um, you know it's complicated but in the past when there have been sort of marked or obvious protests I mean the most famous 
is 1968 um, when John Carlos and, and Tommy, Tommy Smith raised the Black Power salute. Um, they were immediately ushered out of Mexico by the United States Olympic Committee and you know, condemned for using the Olympics for their political means. So I think the IOC is, is fairly hands off. Um, for political statements, but China has been at least you know the reports I've read. Uh, I'm not in China. I don't I don't speak Chinese or read Chinese. But in the reports I've read in the newspaper, China has been pretty clear about if you break the laws of China while you're in China, you are subject to um, you know to being arrested or otherwise prosecuted under Chinese law, which seems obvious to us. But that's a that could possibly be a little bit chilling. You think is it is it just maybe uh, from a point of view of the consumer of all of this maybe just too much i mean you got the super bowl you got the now you you, you know you have the winter olympics in in china it's like how much attention can you pay to all this stuff that's a good point we get we get saturated right i have little kids and you know after a while there are too many cartoons i can't tell them apart. yeah um but i think I, I i'm super interested to see how this shakes out but i think having the olympics just about six months ago might make a difference um, you know, the, the summer games that were delayed and, and were held in Tokyo at the end of summer, um, you know, it was supposed to be in 2020. And now uh, here they're in 2021. And here we are early 2022. I wonder if people are like, oh, really? The Olympics are all the time now. It's kind of like, <laughs> oh, this again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've seen these dramatic performances before. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, you said people were drifting, especially maybe from winter, even before. Is that just because, what, there's there's less of a general interest in winter sports or not that many people have participated in them compared to summer games or, or you know, not everybody ran track and, and, and skied or, or what do you think it is? So, uh, yeah, you're at your your suspicions are, are well, um, you should maybe think about going into history. That's a that's a pretty good uh, line of, of inquiry or hypothesis. So historically, you know, the, the winter games in 1924, when they began, there was all sorts of, you know, why don't we try this? One of the original proposals was to, to have soccer because it wouldn't be as hot during the, the winter time. This was in France. And of course, that didn't happen. But just in general, I think because fewer countries have lots of snow um, and there's also a, a fairly large barrier to entry, right? Winter sports are um, beyond just you have to live somewhere with snow. You have to they can often be pretty expensive. It's expensive to ski or to find rink time to skate or, you know, similar. You know, there's not a lot of ski jumping places out there to just go do a little Saturday activity, right? <laughs> Casual Whereas, Saturday ski I, jump. Yeah, yeah. I'm going out of the YMCA, we're going to lose. <laughs> right? I, I kind of like the idea of Mike becoming an historian. Is there an opening in your department? Yes, I put in for a transfer. <laughs> uh, you, could t- you know, you'd probably have to take my job and I'd fight for it. But you're, you're probably better in front of the classroom. So, you know, let's not, let's not go there. I'll take up curling. Uh, Dave Lunch, history professor, Southern Utah University. Thanks. Uh, more in depth tomorrow.